Over a period of 20 years, the Long Island serial killer is suspected of murdering up to 16 people and dumping their bodies along the Ocean Parkway in Long Island. These crimes have never been solved, and as a result, the families of these victims have never seen justice. Some of these victims have never even been identified. This is Ossuary, and we're investigating the Long Island serial killer. Hello. Hello, Hi. everyone. Well, we hope you're all well and hanging in there at the moment. Um, just before we get into this episode, we just wanted to um, bring up a correction from our Valerie Mack minisode that we had, aka Jane Doe 6. So in our minisode, we had reported that she was 5'2", but it turns out she was actually only 5 foot. And um, she was 24 when she went missing which would have put her year of birth as 1976, not 1972s, had been said before. You know, we're not perfect. Um, we appreciate any constructive criticism that you guys have, especially in regards to the facts. If we get them wrong, please let us know. We want to know that. We want to make it right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And thank you so much to Sacred Geometry on the Lisk Killer um, Reddit page who was um, able to bring that to our attention. We we really appreciate um, you guys reaching out to us and sort of commenting on our things and, and having active conversations because that's really what we're just trying to make happen is just more conversations. So it's awesome. So with that said and done, I think we should just get into it. Let's do it. So everyone, we just wanted to interject here for a second to give you a trigger warning. And we're about to discuss a number of crimes that are involving sexual assault, police brutality, and extreme violence. So please just be aware that we'll be covering some hard-to-hear stories and just keep in mind what you're comfortable with listening to. So Long Island has been host to a number of notorious serial killers in the past, which I don't know about you, but I find that mildly terrifying to say the oh, least. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. At a minimum. Before we dive into the main suspects that have been considered in the case of Long Island serial killer, we just want to sidestep a bit and discuss the history of serial killers on Long Island. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to start with Joel Rifkin. At 3.15 a.m. on June 28, 1993, state troopers Deborah Spargan and Sean Run attempt to pull over a pickup truck that's driving with no license plate. This would have been only a minor citation. The driver, however, didn't pull over. Instead, he just kept going. He didn't even speed up. So after a 10-minute pursuit, the truck then crashes into a lamppost, and the two state troopers pull their pistols out because, you know, they're, they're assuming that something's wrong here, and approach the car to demand the license of the driver. When they step up to the car, they notice a smell that could not be mistaken for anything else. Decomp. In the cargo of the pickup, the troopers found something wrapped in plastic and tied with rope. It was the body of 22-year-old Tiffany Bresciani. So Joel Rifkin was the man driving the truck, and he was an active serial killer between the years of 1989 and 1993 when he was arrested. After his arrest, he began to confess not only to the murder of Bresciani, but as many as 17 murders, including Tiffany. So to give a brief history of Rifkin, um, born in 1959 and adopted by Ben and Jean Rifkin at the age of three weeks, 
Joel Rifkin was a smart child who enjoyed his mother's company. He enjoyed photography and crafts. Um, Rifkin, however, was bullied relentlessly as a child and throughout high school. And for that reason, he was never a good student, despite being very smart. I mean, I think he scored as high as 128 for an IQ level. He graduated in 1977 from high school, but was unable to finish college despite multiple attempts. He was a quiet person, and he even had one relatively normal relationship with a woman who recalled him as being sweet, but chronically depressed. Rifkin's father, Benjamin Rifkin, committed suicide in February of 1987 due to pain from cancer. And this really served as the catalyst for the devolution of Joel Rifkin's psyche. Seven months after the death of his father, Joel Rifkin was arrested for the solicitation of a sex worker. And around that time, he also began to collect books and press clippings about serial killers who targeted sex workers. By 1989, he began emulating these crimes. So Rifkin admitted to killing 17 women, including Tiffany Bresciani. The names or monikers for some of those women were not identified are as follows. Susie, never identified. Julie Blackbird, remains never found. Barbara Jacobs, 31. Mary Ellen DeLuca, 22. Yoon Lee, 31. Number six, no name, remains never found. Lorraine Orvieto, 28. Mary Ann Holloman, 39. Number nine remains anonymous. Iris Sanchez, 25. Anna Lopez, 33. Violet O'Neill, 21. Mary Catherine Williams, 31. Jenny Soto, 23. Leah Evans, 28. Lauren Marquez, 28. Tiffany Bresciani, 22. Wow, my God. 17 murders, literally 17 victims before he was caught. And this just seemed by chance of pulling him over to begin with like how how did these women slip through the cracks for so long yeah i mean i think that like with the long island serial killer that we talk about um throughout our podcast this demographic of women um people think that no one's looking for them and a lot of the times cops you know they're not sort of moving these cases to the top of the list yeah I mean, it comes back to the idea again of the less dead. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. this is this is a highly targeted subgroup of people to begin mm-hmm. with, and not only that, but in a lot of cases, police may look at them as a criminal instead of a victim. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, Rifkin's standard mo was strangulation and dismemberment. However, he was known to have varied from this mo from time to time, and. This, at this point, sounds pretty familiar to our listeners because we're starting to see that there might be a, a change in MO to the victims of Long Island serial killer. Rifkin was found guilty of nine of the murders, but he was associated with eight more. So he, you know, he confessed to 17. He was found guilty for nine. But there are still eight women who have either been not identified, their remains were never found, or for mm-hmm. some reason they cannot be legally linked to Joel Rifkin. Mm-hmm. Rifkin was served with 203 years in prison, where he sits today at the maximum security Attica Correctional Facility. Obviously, there's a lot more to Rifkin's life and crimes and to the lives of the women who he victimized, but we're covering the Long Island serial killer that we know, the one that targeted the Gilgo Four 
victims and the surrounding area. Um, and so we really want to leave room for discussion on that case. Uh, we might end up doing another mini-sode on this, you know, who knows, but uh, we're not going to get too in-depth on Joel Rifkin. But I think it is important that we sort of talk about the fact that he did operate within this area because you're going to come to notice that this isn't that uncommon. And I mean, what about Long Island? It's like a breeding ground for people who target sex workers and, you know, go so Mm -hmm. long killing people without ever being caught. Exactly. And just an interesting sidebar, um, Chris Kumo, I hope I'm, I never know how to say that name. Cuomo. 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 Sorry, guys. It's a name for effort. (laughs) (laughs) So he actually does a super interesting modern day interview with Joel Rifkin um, on a show called Inside Evil. And I really recommend our listeners watch. Um, It's really so strange to see him in this modern um, age because he's now this long-haired kind of dorky and mild-mannered awkward old man that I feel like I'd kind of imagine playing Dungeons and Dragons not that there's anything wrong with that I do love that game Um, but it's just it's so hard to pair him up with the serial killer that he was years ago Mm -hmm. and it although he doesn't show remorse it's he accepts his guilt and he has this confusion with himself and what caused him to kill. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's, it's like he's done a lot of soul searching, try to understand why did I do this? And he generally doesn't know and is quite honest about the crimes that he did. And don't get me wrong. This guy is still an absolute monster. Mm -hmm. It's just so strange to see him in comparison to what, the stories of him were like um, mm-hmm. back when he was an active serial killer. Kind of reminds me of uh, Edmund Kemper. I mean, if you like, if you listen to any interviews with Edmund Kemper, he's very soft-spoken. He's pretty eloquent. He says like things like gosh darn and like calls mm-hmm. himself a bumble butt. And that doesn't, you know, at all detract from the fact that he, well, you can look him up yourself if you want, <laughs> but he's a, a brutal serial Terrible. killer. Yeah, I, I do think that it's important to point out, however, that Rifkin, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but recently, you know, within the last five or eight years, got into an altercation with another uh, mass murderer. And um, they basically fought over who had killed more people. And while I think that he might, you know, be the type of person that really accepts the guilt. I think there's also an added level of manipulation that people haven't quite, um, you know, inspected because he, you know, he confessed to everything very quickly. It did not take a lot of prodding for him to admit to 17 murders. Um, but then again, he's also the type of person that while in prison boasts about killing 17 women. So what does that really say about his, sort of psychology um and i think that you know there's just like a little bit he also tried to blame his murderous behavior on the fact that he was adopted which Mm, i think is a lame excuse because (laughs) yeah there are a lot of people who are adopted and don't grow up to be serial killers absolutely also and there are a lot of people that are bullied that don't grow up to be serial killers and there are a lot of people that are chronically depressed that Mm -hmm. don't grow up to be serial killers Definitely. I think mm-hmm. that there's definitely a lot to him that is is a lot more complex than people assume. And I think that's because he was so quick to give up um, his, his guilt. So mm-hmm. there haven't been as nuanced of sort of psychological studies. I think, you know, with people like Ted Bundy, who adamantly denied it for years and years and years, 
And then tries to blame it on porn. Right. There's some sort of like, there's some sort of something that gives the public this sort of need to know more about their psychology. But with someone like Rifkin, who just straight up blabbered it all out the second he got in trouble, everyone's like, oh, we don't need to know more. But I think there's Mm -hmm. something else to him. I mean, it just seems, I mean, he collected books on serial killers of sex workers like there's a a very strange sort of like intention behind that that is really creepy Mm. yeah no you're totally right um I kind of feel like Joel Rivkin bundied me in that interview he made me feel like you know was taking a look back on his past actions but you're totally fucking right that's that's completely right so just to sidestep for a second on the topic of Joel Rifkin, what do you think the likelihood is that the Long Island serial killer just simply stopped killing? I find it very unlikely. And um, in the interview with Joel Rifkin, he says um, something in regards to the Eastbound Strangler um, and whether this person just stopped killing or not. And he says certain things are very hard to stop. And this being said, do you think that Long Island serial killer just moved on to a new area? I mean, if so, then this confirms the connection between Manaville and Gilroy Beach. And it also adds fuel to the theory of the connection with the eastbound strangler in Atlantic City. Um, another really interesting thing that Joel Rifkin said is that he dumped his bodies, I didn't know this, in sets of three. So he says there were mini clusters, little sets of three. Three were dismembered, three were in oil drums, some were in water, some were on land. It was my own little nightmare scenario. So, I mean, what I'm trying to get at here is Manaville, Gilgo, and possibly the Eastbound Strangler. Are these all connected? Is this just one person moving from spot to spot in order to avoid detection? I I feel like it's possible. So I definitely don't think it's a matter of a serial killer that just simply stopped killing. Um, I think one of the examples that people usually see of that or like the shining example of how serial killers can stop killing is BTK, um, who was identified as Dennis Rader in the early 2000s. And I actually just recently learned from last podcast on the left's book, the last book on the left, that BTK actually didn't stop killing Um he didn't, I think the exact quote that Marcus said was that he just didn't find anybody that was worth murdering in that yeah. time period. It's They don't take a break. They don't just decide, okay, well, I don't really feel like it right now. These are people who are driven to do this. Mm-hmm. And that drive doesn't simply diminish and go away. <laughs> yeah. And on top of that, I mean, we've mentioned this before, um, but I think it's particularly apparent with the Manorville bodies with Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack, who are latest and first Minnesotas about. If you haven't listened to it, go check that out. The The person who killed Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor did so in such, in such a compulsive way. I mean, they left their bodies in the same exact location, even though the first one was found pretty easily after, you know, just walking through the area. So I think it's that level of compulsion that we need to think about. You know, the per, a person who is compelled to leave a body in such a heavily trafficked area and is compelled to dispose of this of that body in such a specific manner um, is also compelled to kill in a specific manner and that is not a compulsion that just goes away i mean that is a that is a extremely you know cemented part of your psychology 
uh, and it does not just end. Um, and on that note, I'm going to move on to the next serial killer that was operating around the almost exactly the same time in Long Island as, as Joel Rifkin, and that's Robert Shulman. So two years later, after Joel Rifkin's arrest, a gruesome discovery would lead to the identification of a second serial killer operating on Long Island. On December 11th, 1995, the body of Kelly Sue Bunting was found in a dumpster in Melville, New York. Around 4 p.m. of that day, two employees of a nearby sheet metal company located on Old Walt Whitman Road began looking through the dumpster on their company's property. They were hoping to find the lottery ticket that they feared they had accidentally thrown out earlier in the day. Instead, they found what seemed to be a quilt and brand new sleeping bag covered in garbage bags. Inside, they said, was something hard and they assumed it to be a dead animal. Instead, what they found were the dismembered remains of Kelly Sue Bunting. Both of her hands had been cut off at the wrist. Her head and face were badly beaten and she was nude, however, what seemed to be her own blood-soaked clothing were found inside the sleeping bag with her body. On her left breast was a tattoo that bore the name Melanie, her alias, with two intertwined flowers below. A white powder, later proven to be calcium carbonate, was visible along the victim's body. Because she was missing her hands, identification through fingerprint analysis was impossible, and instead the authorities implored the public to help identify her. Well, there's so many similar characteristics to the other murders that we've discussed in the Long Island serial killer case. I mean, the removing of hands and feet and also not to mention the tattoo on her breast. I know, right? I mean, I think that, you know, we've seen it a number of times uh, in the Long Island serial killer case with peaches and cherries. It's much more pronounced to be potentially connected because of the fact that they're both fruit tattoos but i think that just this placement it's also a very visible spot if someone's wearing a low-cut shirt it's you know it's it's almost like a stamp um yeah so i mean it's definitely very interesting it's an interesting connection to think about a few days after bunting's body was found detective joseph white acted upon an anonymous tip leading him to hollis queens where he was able to speak to three women who offered the identity of kelly sue bunting these women were sex workers, as was Bunting, according to their testimony. The women also attested to the fact that they had last seen Bunting getting into an older model blue Cadillac driven by a white male. This was the break they needed in the case. From Detective White's conversations with various sex workers who also worked the corner of Jamaica Ave between 198th and Francis Lewis Boulevard, White was able to ascertain that a white man driving a blue Cadillac frequented this particular spot and would take the women that he picked up to his first floor residence in Nassau County. Here, he would ask the women he picked up to strip and cook cocaine into crack using baking soda and water. Ultimately, these testimonies led Detective White to Robert Shulman, a 42-year-old postal inspector and serial killer of sex workers. After his arrest, Shulman made clear his disdain for sex workers while confessing to the killings of Kelly Sue Bunting, as well as two other women, one unidentified, though called Jane Doe Medford, as well as Lisa Ann Werner. The DNA of these three women were then found in his residence in Hicksville unequivocally tying Shulman to the murders. Shulman was convicted and sentenced to capital punishment in July of 1999. While serving his sentence, two more bodies were found in Yonkers with ties to Shulman, 
and he later confessed to the murders while on death row, tying him to five in total. Now, obviously, like we are, you're wondering how the hell there are two active serial killers targeting the same demographic of women at the same time in the same area. In fact, during the time that these two killers were convicted, this was something that people were really confused about. In fact, in a conference held in April of 1996, Detective Lieutenant John Garish of the Suffolk County Police Department made a statement in regards to both Shulman and Rifkin. He said, all I can say about Mr. Rifkin is it appears coincidental at this time that Rifkin was apparently operating in the same time as Mr. Shulman and engaged in similar activity. We have no information that connects one to the other or indicates that they knew each other. So we know that Rifkin and Shulman didn't know each other and they're not connected in any way in their nefarious pursuits, but it's important to note that they're not the only killers operating in Long Island at the time. Still, somehow there's more. It is so scary to think that there were multiple psychopaths murdering women on Long Island separately, not in Mm -hmm. conjunction with each other at the same time. And this really highlights two things for me. Number one, it reinforces the fact that the majority of law enforcement view sex workers as second-class citizens and the less dead. And maybe that's why this went on for so long before anyone found out. And number two, it's interesting in the connection to the victim profile of the Long Island serial killer. So the question should be asked, why do men choose to murder sex workers? Men think that they can just use them and discard them without anyone caring. And it's just so sad because they're people too. I mean, I also think it's important to note that when we say that the majority of law enforcement view sex workers as second-class citizens and or the less dead, that means two things. The first thing means when someone is a victim is identified as a sex worker, their case usually does not get pursued as hard. There's an obvious prioritization and Mm -hmm. sex workers are nowhere near the top of it. I mean, absolutely. People do think that they can get away with this because society has ingrained it in them. It's Mm -hmm. reinforced that idea by showing that we don't protect these people. Mm -hmm. We don't protect sex workers. We don't prioritize them. Right. And then, uh, you know, moving off of that, the second thing that we understand from the fact that law enforcement sees sex workers as less than Um, and somehow not victims and still criminals is the fact that family members and friends who understand them to be sex workers are less inclined to report them missing because they don't think that it's going to be handled the same way that someone who hasn't had this past record uh, is going to be seen by police. You know, we saw it with Valerie Mack. She had a a drug problem. She had um, previous records for for sex work Mm -hmm. and her family didn't report her missing and you know it's a very tough call obviously there's a lot of decision making going into that there's a chance that someone who you love just left and is not in trouble but the fact of the matter is is that so many people are not reported missing because they think that the people who are going to report them are going to be criminalized themselves this is a huge issue it's a systemic problem um and, and i mean it really needs to be corrected So the third serial killer that we're going to be covering is John Bitroff, who is actually a person of interest in the Long Island serial killer case. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. 
John Bitroff is a convicted murderer of two women. He's currently serving time at the Downstate Correctional Facility in the Hudson Valley. But before we talk about his conviction, let's discuss the women who were unfortunate enough to cross his path, Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee. Rita Tangretti was the mother, a mother of three, in fact, and a sister as well. Her sister, Diana, described her as a gifted athlete and a loyal friend. 31-year-old Rita was last seen the evening of November 1st, 1993, hitchhiking along the Montauk Highway east of County Road 101 in East Pachogue. The following day, November 2nd, 1993, her nude body was discovered in a wooded area off of Esplanade Drive in the town of East Pachogue, Long Island. Her partially buried remains were discovered by a youth riding an all-terrain vehicle in the area. According to police, Rita had been beaten and strangled to death. Rita's beatings were so severe that they were compared to the types of injuries seen from high-impact car crashes or falls from great heights, according to evidence later given by Suffolk Chief Medical Examiner Michael Kaplan during Bitroff's trial. Like our other victims, Rita had a history of escort work. She'd been arrested the year before her death for prostitution in East Pachogue, and according to an article from the Riverhead News Review, the police had believed that her death was related to her background in sex work. Colleen McNamee, our second victim in the story, was 20 when she was murdered. A daughter and a sister, Colleen was described by a childhood neighbor as a pretty girl and a nice and outgoing kid, and described by an older classmate as a bubbly peacemaker during her high school years. Less than three months after Rita's body was discovered, on January 30th, 1994, Colleen's body was discovered in the woods by Express Drive South, east of the William Floyd Parkway in Shirley, Long Island. She'd been last seen on January 5th, 1994, entering a small blue car outside the Blue Dawn Diner in Eastlandia, Long Island, about 11 miles from where her body was discovered. At the time of her disappearance, she'd been undergoing outpatient treatment at the South Shore Treatment Center in Islandia. In fact, she'd been on her way there when she left her mother on January 5th. Both Colleen and Rita were found nude, strangled, with severe head injuries. They were also found in somewhat staged positions with their legs spread apart, arms lifted over their heads, and with wood chips on and around their bodies. According to a New York Times article, they'd both been missing the same piece of clothing, but it didn't specify what the article of clothing was. The cause of death for both was blunt force trauma to their heads and strangulation. Similar to Rita, and therefore our other victims, Colleen McNamee had been arrested previously for prostitution, and both Colleen and Rita were known to work the East Pachogue area, although only one arrest incident exists on Colleen's records. DNA evidence collected from both crime scenes established their status as victims of the same perpetrator, but beyond that, it was a cold trail for 20 years. That's crazy. Wow, 20 years again there's so many similarities 20 year spaces before these crimes are solved it's just awful again I I feel like a broken record here but this happens so often and one thing I find interesting the way that I wonder why he positions the bodies that way and in addition to that why does he display wood chips around them is that so I don't think it was as much of like a display of wood chips as much as they'd found remnants of them Mm -hmm. um I believe that actually they talk about it during his case, um, they showed the jury like uh, fragments of the wood chips to prove that they were in fact wood chips. And Bitchroff was a carpenter, so the wood chips would make sense as residue from his work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. It's crazy. And I think it also sounds like with these crimes, particularly with Colleen and Rita, that he was really in the final stages of like perfecting his mo. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also important to note that like. You know, these women were killed in the 90s and Mm -hmm. he wasn't 
caught until much, much later. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going back to what Emma had said earlier about Joel Rifkin's sort of comment of like, there are certain things that are really hard to stop. You know, did he just stop or are there more bodies that we just haven't found? So I think that the perfect dovetail off of that is actually to mention another victim here, uh, Sandra Costilla. And John was considered a suspect in her still unsolved murder. Sandra's body was discovered in a wooded area off of North Sea, Long Island, just 18 days after Rita's. And while Bitroff was considered a suspect, no conclusive evidence was ever discovered to tie Sandra to Rita and Colleen's murders. And to this day, nobody has been arrested for Sandra's murder. But before we just move on from that, I want to point out the wording. It's not that there was no reason to consider that John Bitroff might have done this. It's just that there was no conclusive evidence ever tied. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that wording and that diction is important mm-hmm. because it means that just because there isn't, just because there's a lack of evidence doesn't mean that that mm-hmm. evidence doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Or also, I mean, there's a very complicated um, sort of legal system behind actually convicting someone of a crime, right? Like mm-hmm. we see crime dramas all the time. Obviously, people who are listening and who are interested in true crime have seen juries and and those like courtroom dramas. But the fact of the matter is, is what you know, what the prosecution really has to portray is that there is no doubt in anyone's mind that this person is wholeheartedly connected to a crime. And the reason that a lot of people aren't convicted right away is because if you, if you try and and indict someone for a crime that way, uh, before you have all of the pieces together, you run the risk of uh, not being able to convict them again. If you know if the trial doesn't go the way that you want, you you cannot convict them again. Like even exactly. if you have new evidence, so it's really complicated. Um, but I really I I'm glad that you pointed that out, Sarah, because I think it's really yeah. important to note that that's not saying that he is not involved. It's just saying that they don't have any conclusive evidence saying that he is exactly. So let's talk about John Bitchoff's arrest and the case against him. Mm-hmm. At 6.30 a.m. on July 21st, 2014, keep yes. in mind how long after the discovery of these bodies that is. And how recent it is to where we are right now. That's only yeah. six years ago. Like, That's I not think that I long. Could, I think I could exactly pinpoint what I was doing on July 21st, 2014, just saying. So... John Bitroff was arrested for the murders of Rita Tangredi and Colleen McNamee. That's just under 21 years since Rita's murder and 20 years since Colleen's. But before we get into the discussion of the trial, let's talk about how this cold case broke back open. Familial DNA. In 2013, John Bitroff's brother, Timothy, was convicted of criminal contempt. By state law, this required that his DNA be submitted to authorities and eventually a statewide database created back in 2000. When Timothy's DNA was entered, it was discovered to be a partial match to the semen taken from Rita and Colleen's crime scenes. Once Timothy was ruled out as a suspect of the murders, the police turned their attention to relatives and eventually began following his brother, John. They tested a cigarette thrown out by his wife and took some trash bags that he'd left outside his home. The nail in the coffin came when DNA on a coffee cup from said trash tested positive to the semen from the crime scenes. Bitroff had actually been arrested and convicted in 1990 for assault. He was 27 at the time, and since it was before the mandatory nature of DNA sampling in New York, he wasn't required to give any DNA. 
Had he given a sample then, these cases would have been solved nearly two decades earlier. That's insane. That's so frustrating to think. And I feel like this is such a common trend of what if like this person was caught earlier, which Mm -hmm. like so often they're in like arm's reach of being caught and because of a technicality or because there's something they weren't doing at the time, they get away with it. And it's so frustrating to hear that. But I think in addition to that, it's incredible to see the impact that the improvement in DNA and the genealogy DNA that's happening um, is having on crime. And like, just think about it, those families after 20 years, finally getting an answer. I mean, this has been an absolute game changer. So after John Bitroff's arrest in 2014, a January 17th date was set for his trial and the trial wound up getting pushed back. Over the course of the trial, the public and the families of the victims received a gruesome picture of the suffering of Rita and Colleen, as well as the person behind such suffering. The jury deliberated for a week before finding John Bitroff guilty, and he was sentenced to two consecutive sentences of 25 years to life. The judge who provided the sentencing, Suffolk County Supreme Court Justice Richard Ambrose, said, and I quote, these two murders are as brutal as anything I've ever seen, and said that his sentencing was designed to assure that Bitroff would never see freedom again. Rita's son, Anthony Beller, also stood up at her trial and told Bitroff, I will one day have to tell my children how their grandmother was taken from us. You are the monster in that story. Colleen's father took the stand too, thanking the jury for their work and reminding them of the true victimhood that Colleen and their family suffered, saying, my daughter's hopes and ambitions and our hopes for her died with her. Colleen's brother emphasized the brutality of Colleen's murder and called Bitroff a stone-cold killer. And he's right. This is a man who brutalized two women to the degree that their bodies sustained injuries similar to high-speed car wrecks. Both bodies had brain tissue visible due to their wounds. And he purposefully selected from a population that is already highly victimized. ADA Biancaville highlighted this by saying he relished in the fact that his victims had evidence of more than one sexual encounter. That's why he chose these girls. He chose them because they were victims and they were vulnerable. And he chose them because he thought that no one would care enough to bring him to justice. And thankfully, he was wrong. And some semblance of justice has been brought. That's not the end of it, though. Biancaville also said outside of court that he thinks it's possible that Bitroff may have killed other women, offering to provide evidence of animal brutality and saying he's got a long history of brutality and disregard for life. He referenced Bitroff once wrestling a pig and slitting its throat, as well as another incident while hunting where Bitroff apparently cut a deer's heart out and ate it raw. Biancaville's first stated link between Bitroff and the Gilgo Beach victims came at the same time, after Bitroff's sentencing, when Biancaville said, I suspect there are aspects of the Gilgo investigation that are similar to the manner in which Mr. Bitroff committed these crimes. He also said that remains of some victims could be attributed to Bitroff, but declined to comment further due to the ongoing nature of the case and didn't specify what victims he was referring to. Now, while Suffolk County PD hasn't confirmed Biancaville's statements, one can't ignore the discovery of Jessica Taylor's torso in the same town where Bitroff lived or the later discovery of her skull and hands near Gilgo or the proximity of his childhood home slash his father's house to Fire Island and the discovery of Fire Island Jane Doe's legs there. Or the very strange discovery that Rita Tangredi's grown daughter was best friends with Melissa Bartholomew, one of the Gilgo Four. In fact, 
if you specifically examine the diction used by Suffolk County PD in the moment, no evidence exists to link him to these cases. And I think that's an important distinction. As we talked about earlier, this diction, this legal choice of words is really important. Coincidences don't make evidence. That's true. I get it. But the overwhelming strangeness of the proximity of the Gilgo Beach bodies, the similarity in the victim pool, so much so that one victim's family member provides overlap with one of the Gilgo Four, this has to at least just be acknowledged. Absolutely. It's just too many coincidences. Definitely. And I mean, like you're saying, that so many similarities, almost too much to not be coincidences. I also find the connection with uh, Melissa Bartholomew is so crazy because, I mean, you might remember that right before she disappeared, she actually had a lot of calls on her phone to Manabelle. Yeah, I mean, again, like, this is something where we're constantly saying, like, oh, a coincidence, a coincidence. But it's just gotten to the point where this case has just become so convoluted and so, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it because it's just too much overlap. Um And, you know, obviously there are such things as coincidences, but when it's this many in one case, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. At what point do a certain number of coincidences stop being a coincidence in itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess now that we really understand Bitroff's connection to the case, let's also bring up some other suspects that have been considered by authorities and the public to be involved in the Lisk case in some way. Um, And I guess next we want to talk about James Burke. And I'm again, I'm going to restate the sort of trigger warning for police brutality. This can get pretty triggering for people who have um, who have suffered, you know, at the hands of police. Uh, It's very disturbing. So just just a warning. So James Burke, this guy fucking sucks. Like, we can't emphasize this enough. We try really hard. You know, we're we're presenting information to you guys and it is our job to be as impartial as possible. But I also think that in the case of James Burke, with the evidence that we have, it is fair to present you with our opinion that this guy sucks. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that the men who are brutally killing women don't also suck. I mean, they're the fucking That's implied. We figured that you already figured that one out. (laughs) But this is just, you know, this is like a, a level of complexity that just honestly is truly scary because of the connection to the police. So, you know, I'll just get into it. But just keep in mind, this guy sucks. We know it. You should know it too. So James Burke became chief of Suffolk County PD in 2012 at the height of the Gilgo investigations. And according to the testimony of a sex worker who knew Burke intimately, he may have had more to do with the Lisk murders than simply leading their investigation. But we'll get into that. Burke has a really long history involving the Suffolk County Police Department. When he was only 14 years old, Burke testified against some neighborhood friends of his in the vicious and senseless murder of the 13-year-old boy, Johnny Pius. Pius went to meet his best friend in the playground of their school in 1979, but he never returned home that night. Instead, after witnessing four neighborhood boys steal a near worthless bike, I mean, it was worth $5 at the time, he was chased down, beaten, and had rocks shoved down his throat. Burke was a key witness in this trial, which sent two young men, 14 and 15 years old, to jail for murder. This was also the trial that Burke met Thomas Spoda. And we've mentioned Spoda before, as he was the DA for Suffolk County during the break of the Gilgo Beach murders. Spoda had a hand in helping Burke climb the ranks of the police force, and 
I think it's safe to say that he is also fairly corrupt as a as we're gonna a call him huh? minimally problematic <laughs> yes i think that's a great way of putting it so james burke has been quoted by a high school acquaintance as having said quote he wanted to be a cop so that he could get away with breaking the law end quote for a long time this is exactly what happened well, so that is literally a blatant sign of narcissist slash psychopath slash generally terrible person of privilege. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Burke was known for being a sex-obsessed narcissist. By the time he became police chief in 2012, his career involved allegations of illegal wiretapping, cover-ups, sex addiction, drunk driving cops, and blackmail. In the mid-90s, Burke was internally investigated for having a relationship with a sex worker who had been arrested multiple times by his own department. It had been speculated that Burke would illegally shake down drug dealers and users for crack so that he and his then-girlfriend could use it themselves. Oh my god. Burke was found responsible for the unbecoming conduct, that's in quotations, and I'm rolling my eyes, of the relationship, but was never formally disciplined other than having to pass up a promotion at the time. That's not discipline. That's no. not at yeah. all. That's nothing. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the the speculations of, of having used crack cocaine while being an officer of the law and using his power over people in that way was never investigated fully. And he was wow. never deemed responsible for that. It was just, he was just deemed responsible like, for maybe having. he did this. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you're probably thinking, how does a guy like this make it to the top of the chain of command in a police department? Yeah, us too. But unfortunately, that's what happened. And it led to some pretty shady shit. So in December 2012, a man named Christopher Loeb was detained by um, Suffolk County PD, beaten, and then chained to the floor of the precinct without having his rights read to him or reason for arrest made clear. Oh my God. Loeb was a petty thief and a heroin user, and he had a suspicion that his arrest had something to do with a duffel bag that he had recently stolen. A duffel bag that was full of pornography, some including what looked like adolescent boys, sex toys, a gun, handcuffs, and mace. Burke was forced into retirement right after the scandal surrounding this incident in 2012. However, he was still owed almost half a million dollars of unused sick and vacation time by the department. What? By 2013, another investigation was led against Burke on charges of assault and threatening a suspect. He pleaded guilty on February 26th of 2016 and was later sentenced to 46 months in prison. This guy fucking sucks. Like, I I just have no words for how much scandal surrounds him and how little he was actually like held accountable for this mm-hmm. and just to circle back real quick to clarify james burke was literally beating a guy up over a bag of dicks yes. is that correct yeah yeah yep essentially so, that is exactly what it literally. is not yes. only was he beating him up he then made sure that this guy was chained to the floor of the precinct not Dang. only change the floor of the precinct and also not read any of his rights, which, by the way, is you, you cannot be detained that way. Like, that is just not how it works. Then he also went ahead and threatened other police officers into covering up 
the 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 crime the that he incident. committed. So he right. was not only threatening, you know, the people that he's supposed to be protecting in his county, but he's also forcing other police officers um, to cover up for him as well. So it's just this really convoluted case of just absolute corruption. It's disgusting. This is just abuse of power in hurting those that he's supposed to be protecting, mm-hmm. as you said, but also utilizing the system in place that he is at the top of to mm-hmm. convince other people that what he's doing is fine and to cover yeah. it. So guys, I really feel like from now on, we should be calling Jane's book B.O.D., a.k.a. Bag of Dicks. I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so throughout Burke's career or throughout Bag of Dick's career, from 1986, when he was first hired, he had the ear of Thomas Spoda, who would go on to serve as district attorney to Suffolk County from 2002 into 2017. It was his connection to Spoda that allowed him in many ways to move up the ranks, regardless of the fact that he abused power, women and alcohol on a regular basis. Burke was announced as having been promoted to chief only a few days after Shannon's body was found in December of 2011. He assumed the role just one month later in January of 2012. One year later, his pal, Thomas Spoda, would decline the FBI's offer to create a profile for the Long Island serial killer. Let that just blare some like warning signs all over everything for all of our listeners. Just glaring lights. Yeah. So while this seems super shady, um, especially with Burke's potential involvement in the case, it's important to note that the FBI was involved in the case before Burke came on as chief and did not create a profile as it was deemed potentially harmful to the case. Rolling Stone magazine says that the DA's office, which was led by Spoda, didn't think this was a good idea because profiles carry the risk of being used against the prosecution if a defendant doesn't perfectly match up with it, but is still being accused. So to put it in a little bit more easy terms to comprehend, essentially, if you have the prosecution uh, trying to indict a, um, a suspect on, on a case, um, if there is a profile and if the suspect doesn't clearly match up with every single point on the profile, obviously everyone's like, well, of course, like a profile is just an assumption, like sort of a, you know, it's, it's a psychological, it's like a guideline, it's a guideline, it's a guideline. Um, But because, you know, legal terminology is so specific, um, something like a profile, if it doesn't match up perfectly with the person that they're accusing of murder, that can be used against the prosecution to, form a defense Um, yeah the defense would definitely use that but it also like i think that you would have to consider the strength of the case in general Mm -hmm. you know like if it's a case like john bitrolf where it's like Mm -hmm. we have this dna we have right right exactly maybe not bitrolf exactly but again like if you have dna if Mm -hmm. i'm not going to say eyewitnesses because eyewitnesses can be notoriously unreliable but if you have a strong case and the only thing that would be argued against it is the profile then Personally, I wouldn't think that that's a very strong defense. Right. I, I think that, you know, um, in terms of the profile, I'm not, I, I'm not convinced about the DA outwardly declining the FBI to create a profile. You know, you, it, it you mean you're not like with their argument of why yeah, they did it? Yeah, yeah. I, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't make 100% sense. I mean, I understand the it runs the risk of potentially forming a defense for the suspect. But like you said, you know, that's only if there's only circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So it just seems very, very, especially with a case that involves so many victims, 
Um, and that is so convoluted. It just, it seems very shady to me. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we should, we should take it that way. So not only do we have a pattern of corruption throughout the Suffolk County Police Department, but one of their highest ranking officers in the department, a precinct that is one of the largest in the country, not only has priors of relationships with sex workers that his department actually arrested, but is also charged with assaults over a stolen bag of sex toys and porn. If this was only sex toys and porn, something which truly is not incriminating if it's legal, why would he go through such trouble of assaulting the suspect and trying to threaten others to cover it up? It seems very, very suspicious. Not only that, but his good friend was the DA at the time and kept the FBI from actively profiling the Long Island serial killer case. And then on top of all of that, there's the fact that he was incriminated by a sex worker that he had supposedly had a relationship with to have involvements in the Long Island serial killer case. Yeah, let's not forget about the allegations against him by a sex worker who says that Burke paid her for sex at a party in Oak Beach. She was identified only as Leanne, and she sat down with John Ray, a former defense attorney for the Gilbert family, to tell a tale of severe sexual aggression on the part of Burke at a house party, which also served as the first time she'd been paid for sex. Leanne claimed that Burke was unable to climax and then attempted oral sex, at which point he became so aggressive with her that she had tears in her eyes. And the word she used to explain the treatment was dehumanizing. Burke's lawyer obviously dismissed the claims as just tabloid journalism, but should that be the case, it still wouldn't negate the immensely checkered, at best, record that Burke has had during his time at the Suffolk County Police Department. Wow. And there are so many red flags with Burke, and I feel like almost like the bag of dicks, as we're calling it. What if this was just the tip of the iceberg? What if he knew that if this was uncovered, that this would be a snowball effect of showing all of his other... Um, you know, terrible things that he's done and what if it would lead to his involvement in the murders of Long Island? I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, there's something that we're not seeing. I do know, you know, obviously there's a lot more to Burke's career of of criminality and just abuse of power. Um, you know, if we went into all of it, we would have, we would need one yeah, episode. a whole other episode, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um but I do know that, you know, his interest and obsession with sex, it was known by almost all of the police officers that he was in close contact with. They would go to a strip club on a regular basis. And um, according to a Vice article who actually interviewed one of the uh, dancers at the, the club who would also um, sometimes engage in, in sex work there with the cops, she would constantly talk about how aggressive Burke was and how the cops in general that that frequented the place just tended to be looking for more of a an aggressive time um Mm -hmm. and something really interesting is she she said they're not like the firefighters who were looking for something gentler which I just think is a really um funny and disturbing way of putting it um (laughs) but you know so so his like his absolute you know like obsession with sex was known very well and Mm -hmm. obviously there could be something where he was set off in a rage um against someone taking his sexual property Mm -hmm. um but i do think that it's important to note that some of the pornography was said to have had young boys in it and i do know that christopher loeb when he 
you know, the, the sort of climax of his beating and um, what really set off uh, James Burke to, to become so, so enraged and really, really, really hurt him was when he actually called James Burke a pedophile. Oh, wow. So I think that's another thing that we need to think about. I mean, you have this sex-obsessed chief of the Suffolk County Police Department, and he hurts this man who, you know, obviously stealing is not... We're not condoning it, No, we're not condoning it, but But, stealing a duffel bag, that's not the worst thing that you can do, and you certainly, I mean, no one deserves to be beaten over anything, but, you know, this certainly did not warrant this amount of, of violence at mm-hmm. all or or even rage towards him so i just think it's really important to sort of note that there's something there when it comes to his like sexual obsession and his sexual behaviors there's something very violent there with burke and whether or not he is involved in the long island serial killer case like he was you know alleged to be um he i would not be surprised if he has you know taken advantage of someone sexually in some way or another yeah, and I feel like it's it is important to separate. I mean, there you know, there's a difference between having an obsession with sex and loving sex and being a sexual predator. And I feel like we just need to clarify that um, we are suggesting that James Burke is a sexual predator, not just someone that enjoys sex. And mm-hmm. that's where why he is so troublesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like James Burke in general. Um, really reminds us of the broader issues of corruption um, within the police force. And um, I mean, how can we count on these people to protect and serve us as a society when they're so corrupt, they Mm -hmm. abuse their power and they break the law themselves. And I mean, to me, if Burke isn't the perpetrator of the crimes on Long Island, I think he at very least knows the person is protecting them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we found out that he had at least something to do with it. I also want to say that I think as of last year, Burke is officially free. So Is he really? Oh, yeah. Geez. Wow. But guys, the list of suspects does not end here. Next episode, we're going to cover three other suspects who have all been implicated in the case of Long Island serial killer in some way. Hey guys, you ready for some spooky shit? Spooky. Hello, friends. I don't know why I'm reintroducing you on the no, movie. It's right. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe some people are just tuning in for just here for the I don't know. Stuff, right? <laughs> uh, that would be kind of fun. I won't judge um, you. Yeah, no, I, I'm all about people just wanting some spooky shit in their life. Uh, it's the entirety of who I am. <laughs> yeah, 100% me too. Um, so I'm really excited to share my spooky shit this week. I'm so excited to hear it. Yeah. Can, um, Sydney's been building this up for us for like oh, no, a week and a half, I want to say. It's gonna, it's not going to be that It's going to measure up. You're fine. No stress. Um, this isn't any pressure at all. So, um, <clears throat> so I was reminded of this because as I was editing 
uh, an episode, our last full episode, so not our mini-sode, but our last full episode, I was listening to some of the recordings and um, specifically some of the recordings that I had to re-record because my mic has been not working properly for the last few times. Um, and as I was listening to it, I heard something in the background that just sounded like like a, like someone whispering oh. next to me, uh, no. <laughs> which is oh, terrifying. Um, so, and you know, I have read about people using Audacity, and that's the the sound editing platform that we use um, to like pick up ghosts. Essentially, essentially, is like a freeform like EVP. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So it's just like that was scary, and we were discussing that for like a hot second, and then I was reminded of this other great potential ghost story that happened to me when I was about 13. So um, I've mentioned before how in my old house, I would, like when I was younger, I would like, I would always think that I saw someone standing in my room um, when I was sleeping, and it would scare the shit out of me. Like I would see someone in the corner. So I distinctly remember this one time, I was 13 years old, and I was getting yelled at by my mom. Love you, mom. Uh, <laughs> because I lost a pair of my earrings. Um, and, you know, obviously as a kid, you know, when you're given something valuable and you lose it, that's like, uh, like it like shows your irresponsibility. But the Just thing reinforces is- reinforces everything that your parents oh, have been saying for forever. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, obviously I was upset that my mom was disappointed, but the thing is, is that I remembered putting them in like my jewelry box. I, I, I knew that they were around, and I didn't understand where they had gone. I had been looking for my earrings for two months. With every single time my mom bringing it up, her being like, I can't believe we did this, like blah, blah, blah. So one night we decided to clean my room to like look for the earrings again. This is two months after I initially lost it, wow. lost them. We employed my brother, my nanny who lived in because, you know, my mom worked full time. So we needed someone in the house Mm -hmm. to to take care of me, my brother, when we were there. And everyone is looking everywhere. Don't find it. I talked to Sasha. And, you know, for those who don't know, I speak Russian fluently and I only speak Russian in my house. So I'm asking her, you know, have you seen them? Do you know, like, did I put them somewhere that you might know? Whatever, whatever. So we're looking through the house. We don't come up with anything. And finally, my mom was just like, all right, just go to your room and do your homework. I walk into my room and sitting on my bed are the earrings that I have lost for two months. What? You just did a full scale scale search search of my room and the entire house. And not only that, asked everyone that lived at home if they had seen it. And they said no. Not only that, but they were interlocked in a way that I never do it. They were they were locked like that, like yeah, I'm they're showing like you on the camera, like, <laughs> like a like, chain, like people, are, like chain links, yeah, basically, yeah. exactly. So they're interlocked. They're sitting in the middle of my bed, and my first thought, because I'm a rational human being, is, oh, someone found it and put it yeah. in my room. So I grab the earrings, I run to my mom, I show her, and she's like, oh my god, where'd you find them? And I go, they're on my bed. And she's like, what do you mean they're on your bed? And I was like, I don't know. I think Sasha must have found them or Brandon must have found them. So then I run over to Sasha and I'm like, where did you find my earrings? And she goes, what are you talking about? I didn't find your earrings. And I'm like, but they were on my bed. And, you know, how would they have gotten there? And she's like, I'm not sure. Maybe you put them there. And I was like, I, I, I did not. <laughs> so then I run over to my brother and I'm like, hey, did you find my earrings and put them on my bed? And he's like, no, I don't go into your room. <laughs> like, You're just, a gross girl. <laughs> yeah, gross. And so 
I'm like, I walk back into my room and I'm just sitting there and I just like, I have this like weird feeling because I don't know if anyone has ever experienced this where you lose something or where you're like, you're missing something. And all of a sudden it shows up somewhere that Uh you have checked countless times. I mean, in a place that is, I would not have been able to sit down on my bed without seeing these earrings. Yeah. So I, and I had been sitting on my bed, like, well, realistically, I I had been sitting on my bed while my mom had been looking in my room. (laughs) So like, I would have seen them as I was sitting there. And I just like, that moment just like reminded me of how many times it had happened to me in that house of where Mm -hmm. I would put something somewhere, it would be gone, and then it would be moved like two days later. And I distinctly remember when I was really little, and I would constantly think that I saw someone standing in my room and in the basement. Oh, the basement. No, thank you. That's a horror movie right I I know. And I remember like having put this to a test and literally that like moment that like test that I did when I was little it how didn't come back to me. how empirically logical of you <laughs> I know um it didn't come back to me until I found the earrings on my bed because I think I just like blocked it out but I just remember I had a stuffed animal named Noodle and he was just like I called him Noodle because he had noodly arms he was a dog That's cute. and um and I remember like knowing that things were moving around and I would constantly ask people like, did you move this? Everyone would say no. And so me as a small, apparently very rational child decided to put it to a test. And I, I, I okay, when I say I sacrificed Noodle, I spoke to him about it. Whoa. He was okay about the situation. <laughs> Got his consent. We're <laughs> Got fine. Consent. Um, <laughs> Written and consent. basically what happened was I put him on a stair in on the stairs down to my basement. And I never liked my basement. I mean, it was a finished basement, like, you know, it was not one of those types of basements that's like there's a serial killer living down there. It was like a like a playroom, you know. But I just did not like it. Um, and I decided to test it by putting Noodle on the stairs and shutting the lights off and leaving him there for two hours. So I put him on the top section of stairs and he was just sitting there. And I turned the light off and I closed the door. And I had this like like feeling that you get like in your, in the top of your stomach where it's almost mm-hmm. like you have like a pit and it's just like, I didn't, I felt bad. I was like, oh my God, noodle come back. <laughs> Noodles, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I decided to wait like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And I opened the door again and I opened and I turned on the light and he was sitting at the bottom of the steps. Oh, he was no. sitting, he was placed sitting exactly oh, like so he creepy. had been. But just at the wrong part of the stairs. That is so creepy. It was the scariest thing. And I just like finding my earrings like that again, it just like brought up that memory in a way that I I truly like I told my mom this and she was horrified. And we tried for so long to come up with an explanation about how we could have found them sitting so neatly, like someone had yeah. found them and placed them where I could see them. And like, I don't know, it was just, it was just such a, like, I, I'm getting shivers just thinking about it right now. So that's my spooky shit. That was, that was great. And that was it. That and was now great. I have the chills. Yeah. And it's thunderstorming here in New York City. So yeah, this sure is perfect. Is. Yeah. A spooky weather for some spooky shit. Definitely. So guys, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, rate and review on. Tell us your thoughts, like your genuine thoughts. If you want to do it on Apple or iTunes or everything like that, obviously we read those all the time. Please Mm -hmm. 
give us your thoughts. If you want to just shoot us a DM and say, we think you're doing great. Or here's seven items that I think you could improve upon. Like that too. We really do want to take all of your constructive criticism and all of your positive um, thoughts because we're trying to learn, you know, we're a human. And we want to hear your spooky shit. If you have a scary story. Yeah. If you have a scary story that you want to share or something weird that happened or earrings that magically made it to your bed after having lost them for two months, Mm -hmm. send it to us. We'll maybe read it on our next episode. Um, You know, we just want to have some, like some, some new spooky shit that we hear from other people. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, guys. This is Ossuary. Over and out.